So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Mark, and, and we're just going to do the, the overview, and it's going to help us understand what Mark wrote and why he wanted the reader to know what he wrote. Our understanding of the context is crucial to what, to what Mark is going to say in his book. It gives us uh, an interpretive lens, if you will, um, through which we will see the book, and he lays it out real, real straightforward. Um, so we got a lot to cover, but we're going to go quick, so stick with me. The first thing that we're going to ask is, who was Mark? The Bible tells us that Mark was a faithful servant. He was just an ordinary guy. He wasn't one of the disciples. He didn't have any, anything particularly special about him, but he was just a faithful man who was serving alongside um, members of the church. We first, um, one of the times that we see Mark, he, was on, he went with Paul and Barnabas, on his first missionary journey. Acts 12.25 tells us uh, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So this character Mark, who's the, the author of the book, his, uh, his first name, the Bible tells us, was John. He had kind of a first name and a second name. John Mark was his, his more complete um, first name there. And then what happens is... Uh, Mark goes on this journey with Paul and Barnabas, and then he leaves the journey in Acts 13. It doesn't tell us why. Paul and Barnabas continue on, uh, and um, Mark leaves. We don't know what the deal is. He goes back to Jerusalem, and then by the time the second missionary journey comes up, uh, there's an argument between Paul and Barnabas about whether Mark should participate in that. You know, no doubt that Paul was like a little bit annoyed that Mark had left for the first time and he didn't maybe think that he could cut it with them the second time. And so there was a little bit of an argument there. And what happened was Paul went one way with Silas and Barnabas took Mark and they went um, another way down to Cyprus. And so it seemed that there was a little bit of a tiff, but some number of years go by. And the next time that we see Mark in scripture, it's, it, it talks about him in Colossians 4. Um, and this is Paul writing. He says, um, he, he's speaking to the Colossian church. He says, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So it gives us a little bit of insight, maybe why Barnabas was so like argumentative with Paul about bringing him, because like he was related to Mark. So he kind of had like a little bit of like family sympathy. Like, I know you think he's lame right now, Paul, but like, I'm going to bring him with us. And so he, he ended up doing that. But really here, we see that there's a restored relationship, you know, some 10 years go by between Mark and Paul. Um, it didn't turn out that Mark was kind of this, you know, lame duck and, you know, Paul was down on him the entire life. He, he speaks very highly of him to the Colossian church and tells them to receive him and welcome him. Furthermore, he calls Mark a fellow worker in the book of Philemon. He says, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then in 2 Timothy, he, he requests Luke, or he requests Mark. He says, Luke is alone with me when, when Paul is in Rome. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So this character, Mark, who started off maybe not so good, um, he started off good and maybe he kind of got a little bit tired and he couldn't cut it. We don't really know why he left, but it turns out that he becomes one of Paul's most useful um, companions. Uh, early church gatherings were, were at Mark's mother's house. When we look at the book of Acts, it speaks of um, one of the gatherings being at his house in, in, in Acts chapter 12. And um, it's, there's also 
um, some evidence to suggest that maybe the Last Supper also took place at his mother's house. But more specifically, um, church history tells us that Mark was the interpreter and the secretary for Peter. And so what happens um, with this book is that as Mark writes the book, what most scholars believe is that he's actually um, he's actually writing down Peter's dictation of what happened. So many people will call this um, the Gospel of Peter, you know, or Peter's Gospel. Although it's the Gospel of Mark, it sometimes is referred to as Peter's Gospel because it is his dictation. Mark went with Peter and was his interpreter. Uh, Papias, who was an early church father, mentions him uh, in AD 130. He says, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he had remembered, not indeed in the order of these things said or done by the Lord. And it's, it's interesting as um, this is attributed to Peter, as you read through it, there, there isn't really a story in the book of Mark where Peter is not present or mentioned. And every single one, like, Peter's really making, like, it's his account. And so a lot of the evidence suggests that Peter is here dictating these accounts um, to Mark. The, Peter was the, the principal eyewitness in these, um, in these writings. So we come to the author being Mark, and this really being the, the eyewitness account of Peter. But why did Mark write? Initially, the book of Mark was thought to be have written much later, but um, in, in the last 50 to 100 years or so, the majority of the evidence, as they find more information and, and uh, more evidence, it suggests that Mark was actually the earliest gospel written. Um, there, there's more evidence for that, and because, because there was such a recent um, surge in interest in the book of Mark, it's just it's become one of the most researched books of the Bible. There's more on the book of Mark than a lot of other books. But before the Gospels were written, the way that the story of Jesus was communicated was through oral accounts. As um, there, there wasn't a, a written history of what Jesus had done. There, Luke mentions a couple fragments here and there, but in reality, they were only, they were only living within uh, a short time frame of what Jesus lived. And so the majority of people who were alive when Jesus lived were still around, and they were telling the story of Jesus. And so it was easy if someone was able to say, oh, I was with Jesus, and he did, you know, I saw him lift a car over my head, or his head, or whatever. It would be easy for someone else to say, no, that's not true. I was there and I saw it, and that was not correct. And there could be a, a multitude of witnesses who would testify that that was, in fact, incorrect. But at the time that he's writing this, this is getting towards the end of that time span where a large majority of the witnesses are beginning to die off. Jesus, There was thousands and thousands and thousands of witnesses to Jesus' ministry. But this is getting towards the time where there is um, the, these people are starting to die off. And so Mark writes... Um, to, to tell the Jesus story, to, to create an accurate account. And the Holy Spirit selects men to do this. He first starts with Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, and then John. And after the four Gospels were written, there were, there were no other writings about Jesus Christ that were accepted as authoritative and, and counted as Scripture. It was those four that told the story of Jesus. And so, so what happened... There, more people began to produce 
other gospels that were false, things that um, told the story of Jesus that were not accurate to what the eyewitnesses to Jesus' story had said. And so Mark writes to tell the Jesus story, to, to, to cast um, Jesus in the proper light as he was perceived and was seen um, in his time. Mark's main problem was that the, the stories that were starting to come out that were regarding Jesus were inaccurate. And so he writes um, to, make, to, to make it clear who Jesus was. It sounds a lot like, like the area that, the Bay Area, the way, that, the way that we deal with Jesus here. The way that if you talk to anybody about Jesus here, you know, whether they're a Christian or, um, or, or not, everyone kind of has their own spin on Jesus. If you talk to anybody about Jesus um, on the campus at Cal, it's kind of like you could get like, I, I'm into like moral teacher Jesus, or I'm into social justice Jesus, or I'm into, you know, uh, any number of things. Jesus is a, is, a, is a real easy topic and conversation to get into here in Berkeley. And people want to talk about Jesus because the, from the perspective that they're talking about is they're talking about the Jesus that they like and the Jesus that they perceive. And this is the same thing that's happening here um, in that time with, with Mark. He's writing to correct and say, that's not the real Jesus. You guys are recasting Jesus in a, in a way that he was not intended to be shown in. And so his goal was to put in writing who the real Jesus was. So let's look at how he constructs the story of Jesus. Mark is a brilliant writer. He, he seems really, if you look at the original language, the, the, the wording that he uses is actually, it's really the most elementary Greek. It's the, the, the very common, he doesn't use a lot of real descriptive letters like you see in, in the book of Luke. It's really, really straightforward. And a lot of people kind of don't really seem to, to, to take Mark's um, book very seriously because of the lack of, of vocabulary, let's say, that he uses. But the way that he puts it together is brilliant to tell the story of who Jesus is. And we're going to look at that this morning. So he uses literary technique. He uses historical and cultural imagery to lead the reader to who Jesus is. So let's look at verse 1 together. He starts off in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. It's a very simple beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the way that he begins this, it's, it's not like you or I would ever begin, you know, a story. There's not, there aren't too many, you know, stories that, that we read, say you buy a book off, you know, the New York Times bestseller list. None of them, like, you open up and the first sentence is like, the beginning of the book the beginning of the book of the autobiography of Steve Jobs. Like, it just doesn't happen. It's a, it's a really, it's not a commonly accepted phrase that we would think and use, but Mark here uses it in a really brilliant way because we have to keep in mind the culture and, and the time frame in which he was writing and what he was doing here. This, this phrase here, this, this one verse, this is, is a verse that will hang over the entire book from start to finish. We see it in the beginning, about the halfway point, it comes up again as a major, as a major turning point, and then at the end, it finishes the book with the, with the same phrase. It, it kind of bookends it here. 
But this can be read, this, this sentence here, as, a, as an interpretive lens as we look through the book. And Mark, it really makes it clear, Mark really wanted everyone to know and understand and get it right about Jesus. What concerns Mark most is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he starts off with this, with this very simple beginning, with the word beginning. Now, he's intentional about how he starts it because, as I was saying, the, the culture and the time frame, really, this would speak volumes to them. To the readers, this was a huge deal. He uses the Greek word arche. It's for beginning. It's, it's a very intentional how he starts the book. It meant something to the people then. To us, it just seems like a really lame way to start a book. Beginning. But to them, it was intended to bring in their mind, to, to bring in their mind back to the book of beginnings, back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was something when they heard that same phrasing, beginning, it would remind them of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He uses it in a very specific way to tell them about the story that he's about to tell. He says, it's the beginning of the story of the gospel. And the way that he, he uses this, he uses it in a very specific way to demonstrate that this story here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a, is, a, is, a, is a story that is set in that larger narrative. It reminds them of, the in the beginning, God created. And then shortly after that, in the book, in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, we find out that, that we lost fellowship with man through man's disobedience in the Garden of Eden and sin. But then this, as they read it again, they are hearing for the first time again, in the beginning, you know, the beginning of the gospel. That reminds them of that intentional beginning in Genesis and brings them back to God's recreation of that fellowship that was lost. God is recreating. He's beginning to recreate that fellowship that was broken. And he's going to do it here through the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the book, not... Uh, not of, not of this book, necessarily, in, that, in, in the way that he's saying it, but it's the beginning of the gospel, the story of Jesus. So what does he mean by gospel? As he goes through, he doesn't mean it like we think about it. When we say, like, oh, turn to the gospel of Mark, we think, like, that means, that's, that's a synonym of, like, book of Mark. That's the way that, that we would commonly uh, think of that. Mark's not speaking of it as a book or a literary genre. In fact, he was the first one to actually use that phrase. So he's kind of, he's, he's creating the genre of gospel literature right here. And so the, the, the phrasing that he uses here, though, regarding the gospel is it's, it's, um, it's a word that was in common use in the first century that meant a message of good news. Now, what, the way that he's communicating this is he, he kind of steals this term, really, because there were two ways that it was used. In the, in the Roman world, it was used to mean, it, it was used to mean a couple, like, two, two kind of, like, phrases. It was originally used to mean a, a good, good news of victory from the battlefield. That's kind of, like, more of the root. It means, like, we won. It's over. Someone would ride through, through the streets on a horse, you know, shouting the gospel, 
news of victory from the battlefield. The other, the other t- place that it was used, if, you know, it would be used in sense if um, like a, a king was born, a, a new Roman emperor was born and was going to be crowned. That would be like the gospel in that time, in, that, in the Roman time there. And then the second way that it was used um, would be on, on the Hebrew side of things. Now, in their minds, in the, in the Hebrew idea of this good news, what this meant for them was it meant that it was the inbreaking of God's final saving act when he would come and, and send a Messiah to free them from oppression, um, that, that he would show mercy upon his people. It was, it was a term to them that meant that they were going to be delivered, that they would be freed. And so Mark takes like these two things and he mashes them together. He takes the, the Roman term and he takes uh, this Hebrew term and he pushes them together and he creates basically, he, he puts this phrase together, which in short would mean that when he speaks of the gospel, he means that it's the, the victory of God and the inbreaking of God's final saving act. He communicates a lot in the term and the way that he says it. He's saying that this is the beginning of that recreation, that God is breaking in, and this is the beginning of his final saving act for his people. The gospel in the book of, in the book of Mark, as we see, he'll tell, it's the story of salvation in Jesus, and it's the good news about Jesus. And it's interesting because as we see you know, Mark share, we find out that the gospel is not only the good, good news about Jesus, but the gospel, you know, in, in a sense, is Jesus. He is the good news. It's not only this story and the message about who he is, but he is the gospel. He is the good news. It's, it's one of the only times where you can say, like, the message and the messenger are one. Like, Jesus is, is the peak. He, he is the very, um, the very top of this story. And so um, Mark writes concerning the beginning of the good news and the victory of God and the inbreaking of God's final saving act regarding Jesus the Christ. And the, the thing that he really wants us to know as, as he paints this picture, because remember he's trying to, to, to establish the Jesus story, who Jesus really is. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. And from the very beginning of the book, as you read it, we know right away that that is who Mark tells us who Jesus is. Nobody else knows, but the reader knows. He writes with this intentional style here in the very, very beginning to help us understand the themes as he goes and, and he tells this story so we can see how he paints this picture uh, accurately and wisely to show the reader who Jesus is. The, because we know from the very beginning of the story who Jesus is, he tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, it creates a, a, a sort of a dramatic irony as we read, because we have knowledge that the characters in the narrative don't. I don't know how many times, like, I don't, I don't know about you guys, if you've been reading, um, you know, a gospel, and there's so many times where... Um, you know, Jesus is telling them something, and then, like, one of the disciples will say something that just seems really stupid. You're like, you guys are so dumb. I can't believe you don't get it. I've done that so many times where I'm just like, oh, Peter, you've lost it. Like, you just, you don't get it. It's right there. 
you know, but we have extra, we have this, this bit of knowledge that, that the, the characters don't have. And, and in finding out as I was, like, as I was reading, you know, I just kind of began to felt stupid that I was mocking them, like, earlier, because I was like, you know what, like, Mark really wrote this way, like, on purpose. It's like, you know, this is a very specific way that he wanted to communicate here. So he uses this literary technique of dramatic irony. From the outset, we've been given this theme that hangs over the entire book, that this is regarding Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so there's a dramatic suspense that, that happens between the reader's knowledge of who Jesus is and the character's perceptions of who they think he is. And um, but as, as we read through it, we find out that nobody really knows who Jesus is. Nobody really gets who Jesus is or fully understands who he is, just like the people who are trying to retell the story of Jesus around Mark in his time, the reason that he's writing. These people don't understand who he is. So we read with the knowledge of the claim that Mark is making as a theme that hangs over the entire book. But as you read through the book, it's interesting you notice that Mark really, he never really tells us who Jesus is. We read through it, but it's up to the reader to decide. As you read the account and as you come through, we're told in the beginning, and we, we hear that similar phrase in the end and in the middle, at the kind of the halfway point there, but there's never really a point where Mark says, like, yeah, that's it. He makes the claim in the beginning, and then he gives the evidence as he goes through. The, the next thing that he comes to, he speaks using this phrase, the Son of God. The phrase Son of God is overlaid throughout the book, and his handling of the phrase is very important. And as I was saying, he uses it as bookends. And he starts in verse 1 with the declaration that he believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this went way beyond the popular understanding of who, um, who people thought the Christ was or the Messiah was. It, this was an outright term or an outright claim of divinity. So Mark is saying that the Messiah, the anointed one, was not only the great promised deliverer who would free the people, but he was also God. It was a huge, huge different claim. It was something that, that wasn't really a popularly understood thing at the time. And we're going to see this next week. It's demonstrated um, in Mark's gospel next week as we look at the baptism of Jesus, about who Jesus is. And so as he goes through, he wants us to understand with that phrase that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark wants us, again, to know that Jesus is the Son of God and shows us the real Jesus. And he does this through like different like little vignettes as we follow the book of Mark. Every single story in the book of Mark is about Jesus, except for two, which are about John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus. We'll look at that next week. Um, but the forerunner of Jesus points to Jesus. He, he builds this case brilliantly around it, and he wants us to know um, two things in the book of Mark. The major themes are that, that Jesus is the Son of God, but then also he's this promised um, suffering servant that we see in the book of Isaiah. So he demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God um, through a couple different ways, it, it, and I'm excited to get into those more individually, but the way that he writes and he divides up the book, it's really interesting. The book is 16 chapters long, but Mark splits it pretty much down the middle the way that he writes. Chapters 1 through 8 are a chronicle of Jesus just walking around in northern Israel, 
seemingly like doing nothing. He's just like walking around. He's, there's never really like, we're going here to do this. He's just kind of like looking around, cruising around, checking things out. And, and it doesn't really seem like he has like a very like specific aim with that first, with the first eight chapters. But during that time, he, his ministry in that first eight chapters is, Mark reveals Jesus's authority in, the, in that time. He doesn't do much with a goal, but he reveals who he is and his power um, with, with that divine authority that has been given to him. He, during that time, he heals a paralytic. He casts out demons. He heals a man with a withered hand. He calms a stormy sea. He casts out demons. He feeds thousands of people on two different occasions with a child's lunch. He walks on water. He makes a deaf man to hear. Like, way more. I was just trying to, like, write them all down. I was like, this is way too many in the first eight chapters of just, like, all the crazy stuff that Jesus did. If you were following Jesus around, you, you pretty much would walk around and, and see him demonstrate it. And there's so many times in, in those stories where people are like, this guy cannot be real. That you find the characters just baffled or, you know, and some of them it says that they were afraid. Like, who is this guy? He has a divine authority that has not been seen. But then on the other side of it, um, you know, as he's doing that, Jesus also teaches in that ministry. Now, Mark is different than the other books because it's not like the book of Matthew where we see Jesus' teachings for like 10 chapters in a row and it's like, we're, you know, it's like account after account of like Jesus said this, he told a parable of this. There's, there's very few actual teachings in Mark. Mark calls Jesus a teacher, but he doesn't really get into the teachings. What he's doing by, not, by, by leaving that information out is he's showing us that although Jesus was called a teacher, his teachings weren't as important as he was. The way that he builds the book is he points it back to Jesus. How many times, you know, are you, are you in a classroom and the teacher is communicating the content? The t- on the test, the teacher doesn't ask you about themselves. They ask you about the content that was delivered. Mark specifically calls Jesus a teacher, but doesn't share about the teachings in depth like the other Gospels do. He, again, shows that Jesus is a teacher, but he, the teachings are not as important as Jesus is. The teacher has, is way more important than the actual teachings. But the most important character of this, this um, suffering servant that Mark builds the book around, the, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that this, this character that we see in the book of Isaiah was someone who was a servant of the Lord and that they would come and that they would have, um, that they would atone and they would have suffering. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10 speaks of it this way. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus understands that this is his mission. He's clear on what he must do. He even said in Mark ten forty five, he says, For the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He, Jesus understands what's going on here. He gets it. He knows why he's here. And so in the, first, in the first, um, first half of the book, in chapters 1 through 8, 
we see Jesus demonstrating that he's the son of God, that he has that divine power and authority. He has power over demons. He has power over creation. He has power over um, disease and sickness. He has power, you know, infinitely in these situations. But we don't see the second part of it, of that, the idea of the suffering servant. But what happens is there's a turning point in the book in chapter 8. So turn with me real quick to, to chapter 8 and we'll kind of look at that. Mark chapter 8. In verse 27, um, they're, they're in Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And it's about as far as north as you can go in Israel. He's like, he's been wandering around in the northern region for, for like the first eight chapters. He gets there, and then what happens at the, at the turning point here, Jesus, in verse 27, it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of them, uh, one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell uh, anyone about him. So at the turning point of the book, Peter makes this grand confession of who Jesus is. He reads it, you know, Jesus asks him, like, Who do you say that I am? You've heard that, you know, about what other people call me, but who do you say that I am? You've been with me for the first eight, eight chapters here. And we read it, and we think, you know, Peter made a grand confession. Like, he's right, because he is right. Jesus is who, who Peter says. He is the Christ. He is that anointed royal figure that was sent to save the people. And as we read this, it's a little bit strange, because you kind of, like, fi- figure out, like, this is the, you know, the first instance where, like, Jesus is like, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, don't tell anyone. It's sort of awkward. And I don't, I don't know how many times like, like I've had this conversation or like this dialogue with people. Like, that doesn't make any sense. What's the deal? Like, like these people figure out who Jesus is. And he's like, don't tell anyone. Or, you know, you read in the other gospels and he says, my hour has not yet come. It's kind of like a popular phrasing. And, uh, and it's interesting because uh, um, as I was studying this, there's actually a, a whole a whole term or, or phrase to describe this. It's it's the messianic secret motif. I love it. It's like a it's a really intense. It brings me back to like sixth grade literature. Um, it's like the first time we heard about motifs. I was like, this is crazy. Um, but the way that that he divides up the book, it, it's set up in like a really strange way. Um, as you see, as you follow like this, this motif through the whole thing, this, this messianic secret that happens. In the first half, Mark commands, uh, or Jesus commands those people who, who were healed, onlookers, disciples, um, and even demons, if they were making a claim of who he was, he tells them to be quiet. But remember, we have the benefit of Mark 1. We read the beginning, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is, in our mind, that is the context in which we read. So why in the world does, does he not allow these people to, to speak? Jesus tells them not to say anything because 
they would put false expectations upon him. The idea of the Messiah, this making the claim of you are the Christ, it was deeply rooted in their, in their heritage. It was a nationalistic idea. So when someone made the claim or, or was called the Christ, the entire nation would think this is, a, this is a great military leader who will come and overthrow a government and will put Israel back on top and we will rule. In their minds, that is the exact connotation that happened. Um, it, it, this meant something very specific to those first century ears. We even see this uh, in Matthew 21 in the triumphal entry when Jesus is coming in and he's riding a donkey and the people are, are um, shouting, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the, of the Lord. That word Hosanna means save now. And they're putting down the palm fronds. Those palm fronds were a symbol of national freedom. It was, it was, a, it was a sign. You'll see them on, uh, over, um, like in Israel, you'll see them on things. It meant freedom. They were crying out for a military leader. They were, they were laying things down, and they wanted him to come through and save them. The, their, their perspective on who Messiah was, it, if Jesus had allowed them to go and tell people who he was, as that claim, they would be off. They didn't understand who he was and what he came to do. Because remember, he came not to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to sit and rule as a king and be served, but he came to save. And so that is what is being painted here. Peter did indeed get it right about who he was, about Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't really know what it meant. As he goes on in, in 831, it says that um, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. It wasn't confusing what he was saying. He said it plainly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So it kind of validates like Peter didn't get it. He made like this grand statement and then he's blowing it like the next verse, because he didn't understand who Jesus was. He made the claim, he said the right thing, but he didn't know what the Messiah, what the role of the Messiah was. He didn't understand that the Messiah was to be this suffering servant. So Mark goes on to paint a picture of what, what this means. In the middle of chapter 8, the miracles end pretty much like completely. After, after Peter makes this statement, things become way more focused, and they, over and over you see um, that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. He makes that statement three more times, uh, or two more times, a total of three times through the book of Mark, where he says, the Son of Man must go and suffer and be rejected by men and be killed. He tells them plainly. He's, he's not confusing. He's giving us insight into what the mission is. And all of a sudden, from chapter 8 on, there's a very specific purpose with which Jesus uh, is going to. He's focused. He's not wandering aimlessly. He's demonstrated that he has that authority. And now he's going to fulfill um, that for which he came. And as we come through the rest of the chapters from 8 to 16, the, the symbol that we see, instead of miracles and his divine authority becoming the way in which we see that he is the Son of God, the way that we see that he is the Son of God or the, the interpreting, interpreting um, figure for that becomes the cross. Mark paints it in a way so that 
as we see Jesus head to Jerusalem over and over, he shows that the reason that Jesus is going there is for the cross. Mark purposefully, he, he uses this theme of, of the, the messianic secret motif throughout the entire book, not because he's just really clever or really wants to mess with us, but to show us again and again that you can, Jesus won't let anyone pigeonhole him or let him t- say, this is who I am. Mark employs this theme of secrecy in order to teach us that Jesus cannot be known, rightly known, at least for who he is, until we see him at the cross. It's brilliant the way that he, that he goes about it. I was reading it, and I was like, Mark is brilliant. I was, I was just so like, impressed with how the Holy Spirit inspired him to like, pen this book this way to leave things out, to use that silence or use that command to silence as a way to show us that don't try to call me what you think I am. Let me show you. Because as Jesus goes through, um, through his teachings, that's exactly the way that Mark has been writing the entire time. The things that Jesus says don't seem to be as important as the things that he does. He demonstrates. It's a book that's packed with action. And as he goes and, and makes his way to the, to the cross in Jerusalem, the, from 1 to 8, it, it covers like a huge span of time. But from like 10 to 16, it's like, a, like those chapters just cover like one week. All of a sudden, it becomes all about who Jesus is in Jerusalem headed to his death. The reason why he came. Jesus doesn't leave room for us to create him an identity as a miracle worker. He doesn't want to be known as that, you know, the, the first half of, of the book of Mark where it's like, oh yeah, Jesus goes around and he's like the guy who casts out demons. Or he is the guy, he, he doesn't leave room for that phrase of, you know, he's a great military leader and, you know, his face is going to be on our money. Like, he doesn't want that. He doesn't leave that as an option. The only option that Mark points us to, and the only option that Jesus leaves us to, is that he is one who hung on the cross for your sins and my sins. That is the peak of the gospel of Mark, what he's been pointing us to the entire time through the way that he, he writes the book. Who Jesus really is, is wrapped up in what he came to do. Remember what he said? He said, the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross is the place where Jesus' mission to give his life as a ransom for many and to serve and who he is, that's the first place where they converge together and you can see that is who Jesus is. It's the first place in the Gospel of Mark where you can see those two things come together, Jesus' mission and his identity. They, they come into line with each other. And it's also the first place where Mark allows humanity to, to make that claim of who Jesus is. Remember how we talked about how, how he, he wrote this book with that phrase, 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God just being an, an interpretive lens hanging over the entire book. That's exactly how he starts, how he comes in the middle with that declaration from Peter, and how he finishes it. Because as he's on the cross, near the end um, in Mark 15 is the other bookend. Only after Jesus has been killed upon the cross does Mark allow for the, the understanding of that phrase again, that bookend to come in again. And he uses the words of a secular Roman centurion to, to leave like that, that final mark upon it. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, it tells us in the book of Mark that the Roman centurion who is charged with, with guarding the site, he's standing there and he looks up at Jesus and he says, truly this man was the son of God. And then Mark just leaves it. He just steps away. And it just leaves a, a feeling of completeness. Like, now you get it. This is who Jesus is. This is what he came to do. And at that point, there's no, there's no silence from, from a, a critic or someone saying, that's not who he is, or Jesus isn't saying anything. Because that is the one time where it's complete and Mark leaves it up to us to decide. That same phrase that Jesus asked Peter himself, who do you say that I am? You saw me, you heard the declaration of who I am in the beginning, you read the evidence as you saw that I was authoritative in chapters 1 through 8. You heard the, the declaration from Peter in, in chapter 8 at the halfway point that he was the Messiah but he wasn't the Messiah in the way that you thought or the way that I thought or the Jesus that you thought or the Jesus that I thought or the one that, that we feel comfortable with or the one that we want to make up. But as we follow that through the rest and we see that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, at the end, there's the great declaration by that centurion, truly this man was the son of God and he steps away and he leaves it for us to decide. Who do you say that I am? That's exactly what Peter um, or that's exactly what Mark was, was seeking to do, to paint a picture of who the real Jesus is. This is the real Jesus, the one that Mark presents. He's so careful in, in his writing that he points us to it. And when we hear the case, we're, we're forced to encounter that question. We're forced to, to come to terms with, who do we say that Jesus is? Do we, are we still willing to, to hold on to it? with our own understanding of what we think Jesus is? Or are we willing to see him in the light as that even that secular Roman centurion saw him? That like, he didn't get it. Like, what just happened? This man was the son of God. And later in, in chapter 16, we see that, that God raised Christ from the dead and validates and justifies us, you know, through the, the work of Christ upon the cross and raises him from the dead and Jesus lives today and that's why we gather here to worship, to know Jesus. And so it's an opportunity as we look through the book of Mark to encounter Jesus week after week after week to see who he is, to see, um, to, to hear Mark present the evidence of who Jesus is and how we can know him. So I'm excited for um, for that, because this is the exact purpose of our church. The purpose here is for us to know him, to love him, to enjoy him together, and to, to lift Jesus up here in the city of Berkeley. We're really, really excited to be here. 
we're really content just to, to know Jesus together and enjoy him and live, you know, as a community that's going to love God, love Jesus, love our neighbors, and we, we simply just want more people to meet him because it's clear to me and it's clear um, to us about who Jesus is, who, he's, who Mark has testified to who Jesus is. Lord, we're, um, we're thankful for the opportunity um, to, to hear your word.